You're listening to a sermon from Red Door Church in Melbourne. For more information, go to reddoorchurch.com.au. Commencing at verse 1 and can be found in your Pew Bible on page 859. Be careful not to practice your righteousness in front of others to be seen by them. Otherwise, you have no reward with your Father in heaven. So whenever you give to the poor, don't sound a trumpet before you, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and on the streets, to be applauded by people. Truly, I tell you, they have their reward. But when you give to the poor, don't let your right hand know what your left hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret, and your Father, who sees in secret, will reward you. This is the word of the Lord. Please remember. if you guys have picked up on this trend that's uh, been emerging over the last few years and it's um, this trend for big business corporations to be more involved and supportive of social causes. So you have businesses devoting uh, certain amounts of money or participation, sponsorship in um, social causes like Homelessness, or um, providing for the poor, or um, advocating for oppressed peoples and groups, minorities, um, environmental awareness, carbon offsets, these kinds of things. And um, uh, this is kind of an emerging trend which is largely driven by millennials. Millennials care about this stuff, millennials want to support companies that aren't just in it for themselves but who you uh, give back to society and as a millennial and I am a millennial snuck in on that generation I can tell you this is true I care about this stuff I'm much more likely to support a company or corporation a product even if it costs more if there is some guarantee that there is a, um, a benefit for society. So I love, even more than corporations who give certain amounts of money to these things or support, I love social enterprise. I'm a big social enterprise guy. So I, you know, the thank you company started out selling water, now selling soap and nappies and things like that, um, put together by a few people locally here in Melbourne um, as a social enterprise. That is, all of the profit from that company goes back into social causes, or, you know, we, our house is full of who gives a crap uh, toilet paper. And uh, that's because a large part of their profits go to building toilets for people in countries that don't have them and therefore suffer greatly as a result of disease and things like that. These are companies that I want to support. Um, millennials particularly care about these things. Uh, millennials will choose employment even uh, if they know that the company they work for has a social conscience. Now, of course, 
when it comes to a big corporation, capitalist force um, supporting causes like this, particularly if you read about any of these things on the most cynical place in the world, social media, then you will have people questioning the motives of these corporations. Like, what are they really in this for? I see you've got a rainbow flag as your Twitter handle profile pic, but do you really care about LGBT people or is this just for show? Is this just because it's, um, it's uh, because millennials care about this and they're more likely to buy your stuff? It's a question of motives, right? This is what it comes down to. Even when someone's doing a good thing, like giving money to the poor, we need to ask the question, what are their motives? And that question becomes much more pertinent when it comes to corporations, or at least we're much more likely to ask that question when it comes to big business. What Jesus does in the Sermon on the Mount is actually turn the spotlight on us. This is not about whether Nike provides for the poor while running sweatshops in China. This is about whether we come to our good works, our acts of service, our religious activity with pure motives or not. This is one of the things that Jesus is most interested in as he gives his sort of manifesto for the Christian life in the Sermon on the Mount. Now, I know that we've been a month now, three Sundays, a month, out of the Sermon on the Mount, so I'm just going to jog our memory really quick, particularly for this section that we're about to begin, a new section in Jesus' teaching in chapter 6. So, let me remind you, back in chapter 5, verse 20, Jesus drops this bombshell when he said, I tell you to, to these people, both his disciples and people who are thinking about becoming his disciples, the crowd on the mountain, he says, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you'll never get into the kingdom of heaven. And it's a bombshell because the scribes and the Pharisees are the most righteous people on the earth. They're like full-time righteous people, zealous for the kingdom of God. And so this is kind of a downer, to be honest. Like, what are my chances as a regular Joe, what are my chances of getting into the kingdom of heaven if this is true? And what we've learned over these years is the, the reason that we can have confidence as Jesus' followers that our righteousness will in fact exceed that of the scribes and Pharisees is because righteousness is not so much about external behavior but more about internal realities. It's a question of whether we are, in fact, saved, whether we are, in fact, daily disciples of Jesus. Let me just give you the definition of righteousness once again. Righteousness. Whole person. It's all of me. I'm all in. Heart deep. It's not just external. But heart deep behavior that accords with God's nature, will, and kingdom. So in this sermon, Jesus is giving us a picture of, and in himself, in his life, death, burial, resurrection, we see a picture of God's nature, will, and kingdom. And then our Christian life is about having the kind of behavior that reflects, that accords with who God is, what he's like, the kingdom that he's building. 
whole person, heart deep. That's how followers of Jesus will exceed the righteousness of the Pharisees who are obsessed with externalities. They'll do it by actually living from the heart. They'll do it through their motivation. Purity of heart, he says, in the Beatitudes. So the rest of that chapter in chapter 5 from that bombshell verse on is really Jesus giving us examples of how to live righteous lives when it comes to like practical, ethical, moral living. So remember he gave us those six examples, anger, uh, adultery, divorce, um, other things, insults. Right, the six examples that we went through week by week. Practical, moral, ethical living that demonstrates true righteousness. Now he's going to move from that kind of practical, ethical, moral, relational living. He's going to give us three examples now in chapter 6 of righteous religious practice. Righteous religious practice. Now, we just need to, I just need to address this, this kind of trend in, in Christianity today, and, and most of us can probably resonate with this. It's kind of like a bit of a slogan of Christians to say, uh, I'm not religious, I have a relationship with Jesus. I'm not religious, and what we want to do is like say, this is more than just externalities. We, we, we're saying we're not Pharisees, we're not scribes, we're not nominal people who just turn up to church because that's the thing to do, right? So we're trying to make that distinction. I, I, I know where we're coming from and our motives are good, but actually I think it's probably largely unhelpful to, to make that distinction because, first of all, people who are driving past right now who aren't church people don't understand what the heck you're talking about. Um, they don't get the nuance. They're not part of the in crowd. Secondly, Christianity is a religion, like it is, the biggest religion actually in the world. And what we're doing here this morning, even in gathering together, is religious practice. Um, It's more than that, and it's not merely external. You need to get that false dichotomy out of your mind. This is religious practice, and God's people have always participated in religious practices. So... When Jesus addresses these religious practices, don't think, oh, that's what people used to do when it was all just about ritual and and now it's just all about relationship. That's a false dichotomy. The Bible is clear. And by the way, the Bible knows about false religion. Most of the prophets in the Old Testament were crying out against mere external religion, mere ritual the kind of thing we think of when we say, I'm not religious. The Bible's conscious of those things, but it doesn't get rid of the terminology. It just redeems it. It gives it its true meaning. So in James, you know, Jesus' little brother James, in in chapter 1 of his epistle, he says, pure and undefiled religion, as opposed to all those other, you know, the, the fake religion, the the empty religion, pure and undefiled religion before God the Father is this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself unstained from the world. True religion is something that we should be very, very interested in, like all of life interested in. And so over the next four Sundays, 
today and the next three, we're going to look at these three religious practices that Jesus is going to address. And they are the three kind of pillars of, of piety. For the, the, the Jewish people in Jesus' day, and clearly from this text, something that he expects from all of his followers. These three pillars of religious practice he's going to speak to. First of all, almsgiving, which is a very old-timey word. It just means giving money to the poor, relieving the poor. Orphans, widows, right? Giving to the poor. Uh, that's today. Then the next two weeks, prayer. We're going to focus on prayer, and we're going to find at the center of the center of the center of the Sermon on the Mount, you have the Lord's Prayer, part of Jesus' teaching on prayer. So going to need a couple of weeks for that. And then finally, fasting, um, the third pillar of religious practice for Jesus' followers. So that's where we're headed. Now, let's jump into today's text, verse 1 to 4. Make sure you have it in front of you, and I'll just pray for us as we go in. Lord, we are here as your disciples. We want to hear from you. We want you to speak not just um, on the surface, but right to our very hearts. Please take this sword of the Spirit and open up our hearts, speak directly to us, change us. We want to be more like you, Lord Jesus. Please do all of this miraculous work. Even now, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, let me just scare myself for a minute because um, what I just did there in praying out loud to a group of people, what I'm about to do now in preaching a sermon publicly to a group of people is dangerous. It's dangerous. Jesus makes clear in this passage this morning and in the subsequent passages that we're going to be in the next three weeks, he makes clear that when we do these things, praying, preaching, religious practices in public, when we do them, we can do them because we want eternal rewards from God and with God, or we can do them for the temporal applause of people, recognition, adulation, but we can't have both. Can't have both. And what determines what we get, what determines what I get for standing up here and speaking to you, what determines whether I get eternal reward or temporary adulation is not dependent on the giver of the rewards, right? So the Father is poised to give me rewards for preaching this sermon, and he's always poised to give. He loves to give, store up eternal rewards with him. That's the kind of Father he is. And it's probably not even dependent on you guys. You are very generous in encouragement and thanksgiving and, you know, telling me that, you know, you got something out of the sermon. So it's not, my reward is not dependent on the giver, it's dependent on me, on my motivation, where my heart is at. Am I doing this because I want to store up eternal rewards with the Father or am I doing this because I crave adulation? 
temporary adulation. That's the determining factor in whether I in what I get this morning, and that's scary. That scares me. Because sometimes it's a little hard to tell where my heart is and whether I'm a hypocrite. That's the question really for us. It's the question for love when she comes out here and prays these public prayers of intercession for us this morning. It's the question for Suzanne as she gets up to lead us. It's the question for Joshua and Joe and Jeremy as they lead us in song. These are the quest- this is the question. The bottom line is, am I a hypocrite or not? Let me give you the definition of a hypocrite according to Jesus. Remember, hypocrisy for Jesus is the right actions done with the wrong motivation. It's not a question of whether we're doing the right thing. The hypocrites he calls out in this Gospel of Matthew, scribes, Pharisees, religious leaders, he's not saying they're doing anything wrong. In fact, he keeps telling them, you're doing the right thing. You're tithing, you're praying, you're fasting, you're doing all these right things. The issue is the motivation. For them, the motivation is for the applause of people. It's all external. There's no heart connection. So, as I'm speaking to you, the question is, am I a hypocrite? What is my motivation? Am I doing the right thing, preaching the word of God? with the wrong motivation. Because if that's the case, there is no lasting reward. I get you guys saying to me, oh, that was good, and that's it. This is scary. Whenever you are doing anything by way of sort of public religious activity, you really need to be just really seriously consulting your heart and asking, am I doing this for the glory of God? For the good of people? And for eternal reward? Or am I doing it for fleeting applause, adulation, This is dangerous stuff. This is why Jesus warns us, verse 1 of chapter 6, be careful. Other translations, beware. It's like a big warning sign. Beware. Be careful not to practice your righteousness in front of others to be seen by them. Otherwise, you will have no reward with your Father in heaven. Makes it super clear for us. Beware, he knows our hearts, he knows they're prone towards wanting recognition, self-glorification. Sometimes we get real clever and rather than just saying, you, can't, you never believe how good I am at this, we'll just be like, oh man, it's just, oh, it's like the humble brag. Oh, it's so, yeah, it's really, it's hard, you know, just having so many people asking me for the, the download link for my latest sermon. It's just, I don't you know, no, it's, no it's, a, it, you know, it's a privilege, but it's just, you know, it gets annoying with so many people wanting 
you know, me to come and speak at their conferences and stuff. It's, you know, that's, that's a humble brag. That's the way that we try have it both ways. Jesus says, you don't, you don't get it both ways. Be careful not to practice your righteousness in front of others in order to, right? The purpose for your doing it, in order to be seen by them. Otherwise, you'll have no reward with some translations from, the best translation is with. Reward with your Father in heaven. He's speaking of this eternal treasure. So it's dangerous, friends. What does this look like in these kind of three pillar Religious practices, Jesus, again, we're going to see this over the, over the month of July, but he, let me just get straight to it. So verse 2 of chapter 6, he says, of giving, almsgiving, so whenever you give to the poor, don't sound a trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and on the streets to be applauded by people. Truly, I tell you, they have their reward. That's their reward. They're being seen by people. There's nothing, nothing beyond that. The, the language of they have their reward, I'm told, is like um, the equivalent would be used in the first century for something you have bought and got the receipt for. So he's saying, that's it. You've bought that temporary ad- adulation. You've got the receipt. You, you hang on to that receipt. You can you know, bring it before God at the judgment and say, look how much praise I got. And he'll say, that's great. There's nothing else here for you. <laughs> he goes on in verse 5. We'll get to this next week in prayer. Whenever you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites. Right action, wrong motivation. You must not be like the hypocrites because they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the street corners to be seen, to be seen. Truly, I tell you, they have their reward. Same when it comes to fasting. Verse 16, he says, Whenever you fast, don't be gloomy like the hypocrites for they make their faces unattractive or unrecognizable or, you know, like screwed up. Mm so that their fasting is obvious to people. Truly, I tell you, they have their reward. That's it. One thing that's interesting to note, and we'll keep coming back to this, Jesus doesn't say if you give to the poor, or if you pray, or if you fast. He says when. And this is something we need to come to terms with. Jesus just expects you to be doing these three things giving to the poor, praying to the Father, and fasting from food. He expects it. This is just normal, normal Christian life. Not if, that's not on the table. It's when, whenever you do these things, when you do these things. Now, this is, this is the good news. God knows us. He knows the state of our hearts. He knows the nature of our hearts. And so in giving us these things to do, giving to the poor, praying for others, for ourselves, 
fasting from food and other things, in giving us these practices, religious practices, righteous practices, in giving us these things, he knows that our hearts are prone to want to do them in such a way that we get the glory and he doesn't. That we get temporal adulation and nothing eternal. He knows that we're prone to go this way. And yes, he's full of grace and forgiveness when we make it all about us, but he's also really keen to warn us against making the error in the first place. Beware. This is a problem for everyone I know. There are some sins that you think, well, the really mature Christians probably aren't struggling with that, and a lot of the time they're not. But this is something that even very mature Christians struggle with a lot. And the more public your profile as a kind of celebrity preacher or prayer warrior or whatever, the more likely you are to fall into this snare. We're so prone to this that it's almost like baked into like our religious practice itself. Like I've, I've only spoken a few times at a conference or a big event, but here's what always happens, and it irritates me so much, is before you get up as the speaker, someone will stand up and just like read a long list of all of your achievements. And that's because they want the people who have paid to come to feel like they're getting their money's worth. I have this great deal of grief for this conference I spoke at in 2013, not long after I first came here. And, and the reason I have so much grief about it is not because of the conference or anything to do with it. It was really wonderful youth conference about um, fulfilling the Great Commission, sharing our faith with others. The reason I have grief about it is because I wasn't mature enough to speak at something like that to have a big auditorium full of people and the lights down and the, you know, the lights and the, the video cameras rolling, I wasn't mature enough. And so I spent most of my time in preparation trying to figure out how to look good, sound funny and fulfill all of the, you know, the, the, the list of achievements that they had read out before I even got up there. I wasn't mature enough. I was desperate for the adulation of others. I loved it that my name was on all the flyers and the social media videos and whatever. I spoke to Peter Adam, you know, he was here a couple of weeks ago. We had lunch together and I was talking to him about this. I was like, why do we do that thing when we introduce the speaker and say how awesome they are? And he's, he speaks all around the world constantly. So this has got to be a big issue for him. And he told me the story. He's like, I went to this conference in Sydney and the guy uh, who was emceeing the conference really wanted to know as much like, stuff about me that he could say in the introduction. So he was like, and Peter, Peter was like, he, the most important question he asked was, how many people go to your church? This is when he was the vicar of St. Jude's in Carlton. How many, like, how many do you get there on a Sunday? And so he answered in, in his way, he said, uh, two million. And the guy didn't say, oh, no, but seriously, he was just like, oh, okay, um, and what are your hobbies? <laughs> Two million. 
We're so easily led astray by this, even the mature Christians among us, the great conferences and leaders, we're all prone to fall into this snare. So he says, beware. He clarifies it, makes it really clear and repeats this over and over again, right? Verse 1, be careful not to practice your righteousness in front of others to be seen by them. In all that you do, it's not about whether you should do things publicly or not so much as why you're doing it. To be. Don't do it to be seen. Implicit in that first verse, this is something probably most of us haven't thought too much about because of our culture, but implicit in that first verse is the fact that we ought to be motivated, if not by being seen, then righteous motivation is eternal reward. Jesus is saying, do things with the specific purpose of being rewarded in heaven. Make that your motivation. That's difficult for us to to hear and probably get our heads around as modern people because in the last couple hundred years, the major sort of ethical teaching on doing good things, good works, has been that of altruism. So altruism says that the best good you can do is a disinterested good. Disinterested doesn't mean you're not interested, that's uninterested. Disinterested means I don't have a stake in the outcome. So the best good you can do is giving money to something where you get no benefit. That's what altruism is. And conversely, to the degree that you get something out of doing something good, it makes it less good. That's what we grow up just naturally thinking. That sounds right. The best good you can do is disinterested good. And to the degree that you get something out of doing good, it diminishes the goodness. So giving $1,000 to a homeless shelter that doesn't benefit me at all is better than giving $1,000 to the church coffee fund when you get to drink the coffee. That's the kind of idea we have in our mind. That's not Jesus' conception of goodness and rewards. Jesus isn't an altruist. He's like, no, no, no. Do the good thing so that you'll get the good stuff. The point is the good stuff is not fleeting applause of people. The good stuff is rewards with the Father. If this sounds a little bit, uh, I'm not sure if that could be right, just read the Sermon on the Mount. He's on about rewards all the time. He wants you to pursue eternal rewards, treasure, He wants you to be motivated, yes, of course, by giving glory to God. That goes without saying. He said this in the salt and the light bit in chapter 5, right? He wants you to glorify God in the things that you do. He wants you, again, salt and light thing, he wants you to do it for the good of people. Absolutely, be motivated by the good of others. Glory of God, the good of others, and the third leg on that stool, though, the one that we don't major on very much, is the reward that God promises to you for doing 
good works and religious activity, works of piety, giving to the poor, praying, fasting. He wants you to be motivated by rewards. I can say with certainty because of the country you live in and the time you've grown up in that you are not motivated enough by rewards in following Jesus. You're just not. It's not really even your fault. It's, 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 it's Australia. It's the 21st century. It's altruism. You are not motivated enough. You need to be more motivated by the rewards that God promises to those who are faithful to him. C.S. Lewis got it. Let me read you a quote from The Weight of Glory. He said, Indeed, if we consider the unblushing promises of reward and the staggering nature of the rewards promised to us in the Gospels, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures falling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us, like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in the slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea, we are far too easily pleased. We're content with fleeting adulation. We're not motivated by eternal rewards, and we need to be. Jesus tells us to be. So then, how do we give to the poor? How do we practice this pillar religious activity of almsgiving? How do we give to the poor Jesus' way? First of all, just a reminder, it's not an if you give to the poor, it's a when. Follower of Jesus, you're going to be shelling out to the poor the needy. Now, in Jesus' day, uh, all through the biblical storyline, you don't have social security, you don't have charities that the church, the temple, is the charity. And so it's, maybe it's more incumbent on them to provide. If they don't, then orphans, widows die. I know we have more of a safety net than they did then, but I don't think that changes anything as far as Jesus' expectation of us to be providing for those in need. This is, from start to finish, the Bible's encouragement to us. So even if you go back to Deuteronomy in chapter 15, God says to his people, there will never cease to be poor people in the land. Jesus echoes this when he says, the poor you will always have with you. That is why I'm commanding you, open your hand willingly to your poor and needy brother in your land. Open willingly. Comes back to motivation again. You're not like, oh man, I, I really would love to get Netflix and Stan, but the guy up front is asking me to give to the poor, so I guess uh, it's not, it's, no, it's open your hand willingly. Joyful, cheerful giving so that those who don't have will have because of your giving. It's not if, it's when. 
This means, yes, passing someone on the street. He's asking for something to eat and saying to that person, first of all, can I get to know you? Second of all, can I buy you something to eat? I have all this money. God has richly blessed me. How can I provide for you? It can be done through more corporate means. So by that I mean like we have this relief fund that we run at the church. We ask you to give to it and we just give out of it. Um, I know my wife Renee is on the team that kind of meets regularly to discern how that money should be used. And we get regular requests from people saying, you know, I'm facing some hardship, could you help out? And that fund has been full ever since we launched it a couple of years ago, purely out of generosity from you guys in wanting to meet the needs of those who are in need. So yes, it's not if, but when. Number two, it's in secret. Verse three to four, when you give, when you give, when, when you give to the poor, don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing so that your giving may be in secret and your father who sees in secret will reward you. This is one of those things, you know, those crazy hyperbolic things that Jesus says. It's like the, you know, gouge out your eye, cut off your arm. It, whenever he says things like this, don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, he's trying to be funny, and he is funny. But he's also making a very serious point. He's like, this is how important this is. Do it in secret. Don't sound a trumpet. Don't do it for the sake of being seen. This is our danger. Remember, our danger full time until Jesus comes again, our danger is that our hearts will betray us. Our danger is that we'll do something for the immediate cocaine hit of people recognizing me. And so he says the way to get around that, the way to undercut that, pull the rug out from your proclivity, the way to do that is just make it secret. You want to give $100,000 to build a new church building? Don't get your name on a plaque over the front door. Just don't. Just don't do it. Jesus knows your heart. He's trying to save you. Do it in secret. I got some advice early on, I'm so glad I didn't take, from a very famous world-famous pastor who, who had a bunch of us in a little group and he said, what you need to do, and it's when I first started out here, so I was trying to get ideas about how to raise money. He was like, what you need to do is get a list of your biggest givers in the church and like approach them one-to-one and just thank them for their giving and encourage them to give more. Nonsense. I don't know what anyone in this church gives and never have and never will. I have no interest in knowing how much you give. I want to avoid at all costs the sin of partiality that, again, James, Jesus' brother James points out in his epistle. 
treating the rich people well because they give money to your church and letting the poor people fall by the wayside. I've got no interest in it. I will never know what anyone gives. A couple of people in this church will know because they keep books or do taxes or whatever and that's just a necessary thing. But I'll never know. Now that might make you feel like, well, I can get away with not giving because at least I don't have the pastor on my back about it. I don't know. That's between you and God. This comes down to motivation. But I'm not going to know. Let your giving be done in secret. Jesus is trying to save you from yourself here. It's not when, it's if. It's always in secret. Don't let your left hand know what your right hand's doing. And number three, in all things, whether it's giving to the poor or praying or fasting, raising children, going to work, in living, in dying, continually pray to God that he would purify your heart in all that you do. That you would have pure motives for pursuing discipleship to the Lord Jesus. In all that you do, seek to glorify God, to bless people around you, and to store up eternal rewards. God has promised them to you, and he's encouraged you to pursue them. I'm going to leave you with a passage that we'll get to in a few weeks' time. This series keeps on getting longer and longer. Maybe we'll get to it next year. I don't know, but we'll get there. Matthew 6, Jesus says, don't. Don't store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourself treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves don't break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Let's pray. Father, I pray that we would heap up, pile up treasures in heaven, rewards with you. We don't want to settle for less. And we know our hearts are prone to betray us. Please save us from doing things for our own sake, for our own glory. Save us from self-worship, self-adulation, self-promotion. Please purify our hearts. The pure in heart will see God. Please continually reform us. Make us more like your son Jesus who did everything for your glory and for the good of others and for the reward that was promised him. For the joy that was set before him he endured the cross, scorning its shame. Please help us to be more like your son. Lord God, please open up in this parish and in the churches around, a generous, 
eager, overflowing desire to give to the poor, to relieve those who are in need, to release the oppressed. Help us to take our money and rather than storing up treasures on earth, help us to release it for their sake so that we might have treasure in heaven. As we look at these core practices of the Christian life, Lord, as we study the practices of almsgiving and prayer and fasting, please put us on the right track, following your son, Jesus. Help us to be able to live each day, making all of life all about him with pure motivation. This is what we want. Please give it to us. In Jesus' name, amen. Hey, if you want to pray,